Computing Broadcast, a fascinating round in three, two, one. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So on this episode, we're going to explore some of the darker, more obscure parts of the entertainment industry. Now, if you listen to my other podcast, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, you know that I am known as the master of film and television for my love of old films, movies, the golden era of television. Uh, I love it all. And there's some of this stuff that I knew, some of it I didn't. But one thing that has always captivated me is the this idea about fame. What is fame? How does What does one have to give up to attain it? Once you have it, how long does it last? How fleeting, how ephemeral is fame? That's really the question we're going to answer today uh, as I talk to Donald Jeffries, who wrote the book On Borrowed Fame. This is just something I cannot wait to get into because there are lots of crazy, mysterious, jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring, tragic stories in the entertainment world that you may not know because these people were famous at the height of their fame where everyone in the world knew who they were. And by the time you're listening to this podcast, they have dropped off into obscurity. The question we are going to answer, or at least attempt to, is why. So let's get into that with Donald Jeffries. Thank you so much for being on the show today. So I see you got all your books behind you. I love that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Strategically placed. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I mean, it's funny because I see, you know, you've written a lot of great books, including Bullyocracy uh, and Survival of the Richest. I mean, I love these ideas for shows. Um, you know, I'm I'm no fan of bullies, but I find it extraordinarily interesting how bullies have kind of taken over the social hierarchy. Uh, I, I love to check out your book. Hopefully that'll be another episode, but um, that must have been kind of, I don't know if that was fun or what was, how would you describe even researching that book? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't fun. I mean, I talked to uh, lots of parents whose kids had killed themselves oh, from geez. bullying. So that was definitely not fun, but no. uh, yeah, and it, it got to be, uh, you know, pretty overwhelming just the story after story and, uh, just these real tragedies that happen and just knowing that that nobody cares and they really don't nobody, nobody I'm the only one out there I, I heard from so many people about it that nobody else is writing about it from this standpoint because everybody else uh, stays away from blaming the schools and the teachers and the principals and stuff and I think that's where the problem starts and uh, so my book is a little different because of that but yeah it was something I felt passionately about and uh, once I got started you know just I kept rolling it hasn't been a huge seller but uh, you know it is what it is. The people that have read it, I've uh, gotten a lot of good feedback from people who were bullied and went through this stuff. Sure. Well, I mean, it's an interesting idea. I mean, not so much focusing on the tragedy of it, but I always find it, I just find social interactions, um, j just how close we as humans are to apes in the sense that we still, it's still survival of the fittest. We still have a lot of primal urges. It's still the right. biggest and the strongest survive. I mean, you look at jails, it's the same thing, right? I mean, bullying right. has such, it's such an evolutionary and tactical advantage that that's kind of what interests me about it. Um, because nobody yeah. likes a bully, but they seem to be so successful. It, it just, I mean, that's kind of what struck me. Well, yeah. And that, and as, as you know, that's the, 
that's the theme of the book is that uh, people say they don't like it, but bullies, bullies uh, run society. Yeah. They are the, bu- the bully personality is, uh, is indistinguishable from successful personality. Yeah. Those are the traits that people admire. They say they don't like it, but no, they do. They like that aggressiveness and, uh, you know, incredible self-confidence, lack of empathy. And uh, that's all part and parcel of every bully's arsenal. So, you know, people say they don't, but no, that's, that's, and I think that's why the schools and media and everything constantly wind up taking the side of the bullies over and over again. I give tons huh. of examples in the book that they never, ever defend the victims. They just don't. Really? That's interesting because I would find I would think it would be the opposite. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. I mean, so it's a great book. Hopefully, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll look at interview number two, man. I'm actually looking forward to reading that book. Uh, it'll, be at least, it'll sell at least one more copy, right? Um, okay. <laughs> but, but here's so we're going to talk about uh, your book on borrowed fame. And this is your book. It's got, you know, kind of I want to talk a little bit about the structure and how it's put together. But in a nutshell, at least in my understanding, this is a book, at least how I would explain it, is about the darker side of the entertainment industry. And by proxy, that's really about fame. And, you know, I think this is kind of an interesting thing to talk about because, I mean, I work in the entertainment industry and, you know, I really love the title. Like the title just really kind of struck me as being so, it encapsulates exactly what's going on in in entertainment, right? Um, you know, uh, let me ask you, so before I get into my thoughts on what On Borrowed Fame meant to me, how did you come up with this title and what did it mean to you? Uh, it was just, I don't know, I, just, I was trying to think of what the title for. I, I come up with the titles for most of my books and uh, I don't know, just something, you know, because it was about fleeting fame and, uh, you know, it's very, obviously it's a take on On Borrowed Time. Mm-hmm. But I just thought, you know, just it came in my head and I said, that's the title I want. So, and everybody has loved it so far. So, you know, that's what happens, you know, when you're right, you know, you sure. just, uh, you know, you get things like that. I used to write songs and poems and things like that. And that's how it happens. Sometimes you just get a phrase and that's what you go with. I love that because to you, I mean, it almost is not that big of a deal, but it struck me because I think on borrowed time is a perfect way to describe what fame, uh, unborrowed fame, I'm sorry, unborrowed fame is such a great way to describe what goes on because fame is it's borrowed. I mean, it's not, rarely is it permanent. It's fleeting. Uh, I, I don't normally start the show with a lot of quotes, but I want to talk about four or five quotes from your book that just really, like, just struck me, right? So first, uh, Napoleon said, glory is fleeting, obscurity is forever. Uh, Emily Dickinson, fame is a fickle food upon a shifting plate. Uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, probably the most poetic of all of them. Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime. And departing, leave behind us footprints in the sand of time. Uh, I mean, just how, I mean, there's nothing more ephemeral than footprints in the sand right by the ocean. And this one is your quote, and I, I love this, although it's really dark, Don. Only a fraction of human beings really leave any kind of footprint behind them, except in the memories of their children, if they have them, or their spouses, if they die before them. Their grandchildren, if they have any, may recollect them once in a while, but a generation after their death, all but the most famous people are essentially forgotten by even their families. Last one here. Uh, this is by Fred Allen, who's a radio star. 
An actor's popularity is fleeting. His success has the life expectancy of a small boy who is about to look into a gas tank with a lighted match. (laughs) These are great, Don. I mean, they really, I don't know, just it just really resonated with me. These strike such a chord because I've been fascinated by how fleeting fame is. You know, we live in the YouTube generation. We're in the golden age of fleeting fame, Don. Uh, I love all this stuff. So what, what, I mean, besides, uh, obviously you can see why I'm excited about this and why it struck me, but why did this really resonate with you as, as an author, as someone who dedicated a lot of time to this? Well, I, I actually started writing it uh, way before I wrote any other nonfiction. Uh, I started back in 2008 or something like that. I just I had the idea, you know, that uh, that entertainers had been ripped off really big, you know, the band members and the uh, people who've been on TV shows, especially from the era when I was a child. And I thought, well, let me try. I, I saw that a lot of them had the websites, and I said, no, let me try contacting them. And and a, a good number got back to me, and uh, you know they they all pretty much said the same thing. I mean, a few of them just said I prefer to look forward, but they all acknowledged, yeah, they, did, they didn't get paid much. Right. And uh, uh, most of the band members said, what royalties, you know? But uh, ultimately, yeah. and, and and a lot of, a lot of them were writing their own book, so they didn't want to help me out much. So. Uh, I, I, I thought, you know, well, I don't know if I have enough material here for a book. So I just kind of put it on the back burner for years. And in the meantime, I wrote it in history and survival of the richest and crimes and cover-ups, mm-hmm. uh, and bibliocracy. And, you know, and then I uh, said, well, let me try revisiting it because uh, I started contacting him again and get feedback again from them. And uh, I said, I'm going to expand this out so it's not going to be just about the, the uh, entertainers that got ripped off. It's going to be about the uh, unsolved mysteries and the un- unnatural deaths in the entertainment industry, which is more in my wheelhouse, my political stuff, because uh, there's a lot of crossover between the political world and the entertainment world, a lot of similarities. Hollywood has a huge body count, just like the political world, and uh, you don't see any other industries. These are the only two industries in the world where nobody nobody really reacts much when somebody's ex-girlfriend gets stabbed 100 times and found in the bushes. You know, if it happens yeah. in the entertainment world of politics, but you know, any other in, any other industry, yeah, it would be, but but not You're for right. Hollywood, not for the entertainment world, not for po- uh, politics. Suicides off the chart, obviously uh, murders and all the the deaths I examined in there again, so many that we don't know. George Superman Reeves and people like that, where they just kind of left it unclear. They don't even they, they don't, well, we don't know. It's like, you know, well, what do you mean you don't know? So uh, I thought that that would be that would make a, a, a for something very interesting. So I just put it all together into like a darker side of Hollywood, and an, an explore, uh, exploration of what fame itself is. So we go over the history of fame, uh, what it means to be famous, and so I, I found lots and lots of people from the golden age of Hollywood on, and uh, who had you know inexplicably fell you know like they they were like leading man or something in the early talkies, and you don't know because they become so obscured. Suddenly their career ended. And I, one guy I found, I can't remember his name. He's so obscure, I forgot his name. <laughs> but he, he's in the book. But he uh, he was a leading man in the, you know, in the, in the, some, I don't know how many movies, 10, 12 movies early on in the pre-code talk. It's a big deal. And he just dropped off the face of the earth, left Hollywood. And I looked on IMDb, and uh, they, they said, uh, there's no record of his death. It is only assumed that he must have died in the 1980s. Wow. So, I mean, he's so obscure, they don't even know what happened. I mean, he'd be like 130 or something. There's no, I don't think he'd be alive. But, uh, and that's the kind of thing you, and I, I, you know, and it happens in the music business too. Shirley Ellis, who uh, had a one hit wonder in the early 60s, uh, The Name Game, you know, Shirley, Shirley, Bo Pro. It's a huge hit, hit you know, back then. It was a kind right. of novelty song, but it was a no, no number one record. And uh, she didn't do anything else, but she was so obscure by the time she died. 
her obituary said it, it isn't known if she had children. Well, well, you couldn't do some investigation to find that out. <laughs> Someone so, couldn't, um, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I mean, that, and that's so that's the kind of thing that fascinates me is that how how do some of these people become so obscure? They go from the highest heights, and and in other cases, they they, they leave on their own. And I, that fascinates me too. You know, they they they're doing everything they can to break through. All the you know the, the servers working at restaurants and everybody out there that tries so hard. Once you break through and you make it, why would you give that up and go? To, and the, I mean, I count found lots and lots of examples of people that went back to the working world. Now the music business, they don't tend to leave on their own. Usually, again, their moment in the sun's up. They have a few albums. And uh, typically, they don't get any royalties. What happened to the money? And then they have to take regular jobs. And I talk about, you know, some of the members, you know, driving cabs and things like that that were in big bands. And uh, so that kind of stuff fascinates me. And so I think, and of course, the, the, I also incorporated a, a survival of the richest type of uh, analysis of uh, the, the money in show business because I looked at, you know, what, what, what some of these stars died, what kind of estates they left. And it's, it's incredibly inconsistent all it makes no sense you know people can look and see for themselves uh it's all over the boards where some people did really well others who had incredibly long and successful career careers did not leave much of an estate behind at all so uh i just i'm fascinated by that and i hope i hope readers will be as well well it's interesting because you know it's called on borrowed fame that's what drew me into it but as you mentioned you just talked about five or six different topics I and mean, i got 11 pages of notes you know i got six or seven different headings and wh while i was reading it the book is kind of like um you know i was 100 pages in right and i was thinking to myself this is just story after story of where are they now and I, it's kind of like grouped by music but there's there's kind of a strange organization and i was you know I was into the book and I'm like, I don't know where this is going, but I really like it. But the last chapter ties it all together, right? I mean, like it's, it's a good payoff because it, it, it brings it back to what we were talking about. And for me, you know, obviously you have, you and I are kind of similar in why we like this idea, but for me, it, it's, this goes, it's such a stark contrast to what people believe fame is. It's like once, the, you know, the general belief is once you achieve fame, it's permanent. You are famous forever. You know, when you're on screen, the silver screen, celluloids forever. You know, I think, uh, there, you know, I always heard growing up in film school that, you know, film is, pain is temporary, film is forever, you know, uh, which is kind of true, but, but, yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, you yeah, know but it yeah. isn't. Um, but, you know, and people seek out fame, you know, for the, for the desire to be remembered forever. But, you know, sure. I always think of it, it's kind of like, you know, grabbing, a, you got a fly in the house, right? You're trying to grab it with your hands and it's really hard to catch. Some people do. And then you open up your hands and it's either flown away or it is going to fly away or it's smashed, right? You know, yeah, yeah. and and for anyone, and, and here's here's really what I took from your book with all of the different stories. Here's the thing they have in common. And I'm curious about your thought on this. Fame and in some level of success, but fame specifically is a Faustian deal, right? You are always making a deal with a devil. It just depends on which devil and you always have to pay it back one way or the other. Very few people, especially in this book, very few people come away unscathed. Um, I don't, am I just a downer here? Are you and I just cynics or are we realists <laughs> who believe in reality? What do you think? Well, I mean, I've, I've, you know, I've heard people, uh, love the book, but, uh, I, I've heard it's, it's, it's a little too down and they, it's depressing, but you know, it is what it is. There are just a lot. I mean, I tried to provide a few uplifting stories. I mean, they heard some people did okay, but unfortunately it's not as interesting, you know, they, they did okay. But I mean, you know, it's just the, the heartbreak and tragedy, the, the, the ripoffs, you know, people that get in it, not to mention obviously all the, the, uh, 
unexplained and unnatural deaths. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just so much there. And, and uh, so it's, it's, un, it's, it would be hard not to be negative while presenting this because it is like you, you know, when I, I wrote in the book that uh, when I was a little kid, I've always been a huge consumer of pop culture. I've always had a bunch of trivia in my head about this kind of stuff. So it was inevitable. I could write a book like this, but right. uh, I, uh, you know, I just assumed like every other little kid that, all those people that were on TV shows that I watched as a little kid uh, were, were wealthy. You know, I just assumed that. And uh, all the bands that I listened to, I bought their records, and I think, you oh, know, these guys are rich, right? So it's, it was a really a, a wake-up call to find out, you know, some of them, you know, you talk to like Peter Noon of Hermit, Hermit of Herman's Hermits, you know, a really big group, you know, that, uh, what royalties? You know, he did, they, I mean, he, he was, and, you know, I talked to people, band members, the Calcils, the Buckinghams, the Trogs, they all had big hits back then. And that was always the same story. And uh, it's it almost like they weren't, it, it, it looks as if they, it's, and these are the white entertainers for the most part. The black entertainers really just, most of the time weren't played or paid at all. And uh, which is just shocking. But, um, and a lot of times they, they made it up to them usually after they were dead, their families and sometimes got the royalties too late for them to enjoy it. But uh, it's, I just think it's a shocking story. And, uh, but, Knowing the, the the film industry is a little more difficult to understand because knowing how the the the, uh, the music industry works and it was run by a lot of uh, a lot of mafia type of people and uh, they controlled the royalties they controlled your sales and then told you what you sold and they gave it to you and a lot of times they just you had no recourse except to so like John Fogerty uh, you know wrote all the songs for CCR Creedence Clearwater Revival you know one of the great songwriters of our time huge you know tons of top ten hits. I have a quote from him in the book where he says, you know, I, to get royalties, I had to sue every time. He, st- he still doesn't own his catalog. I was actually just looking him up last night. He d- I think he gets it in 2026 20, or something. I think I think that's when it kicks in. Yeah, A lot of them don't. Yeah, a lot of them don't. And, uh, you know, the Beatles, most people don't. Really, McCartney tried to buy back the Beatles catalog and uh, couldn't do it. And Michael Jackson came in and bought it, <laughs> believe it or not. So uh, even, you know, the biggest names like that and uh, – but, you know, this, there was never, as Mick Jagger said, there was only about a 15, 20 year period, maybe from the late 60s to the 80s, where there was a lot of money in the music business. That's where, you know, videos were first coming out at MTV and all that. And then the concerts were, you know, being people like me, you know, went to tons of those packed, you know, 30,000 stadiums and um and my, my wife and I alone probably bought God knows how many. We probably got thousand thousand albums each probably. Wow. Uh, so we, we, we supported <laughs> these artists beyond, you know, anything. Sure. So uh, and uh, bought them when they came out. Cassette bought them a lot of them on cassette, then on, uh, you know, CD. A track? T-shirts. Any A tracks in there in your collection? No, I never had A tracks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I went right to cassette. I, That's fair. I made the, I guess, the, the, uh, the intelligent choice, I think. <laughs> Definitely. But the, but I didn't know. I just was it. But uh, I didn't like the way a track broke up. You know, the songs broke up and went to the next track. I just I didn't like that. But um, but certainly, yeah, I would have bought it if it wasn't there. But so uh, you know, I feel like I have a lot lot invested in these in these acts, and so it just amazes me when I when I when I talk to some of them and uh, to to know that uh, you just assume you know that they they must be worth millions, and you know some of the biggest acts are. But to pretty much anybody that was talking to me, you know, I talked to a lot of these people, but when people have asked me, who's the biggest name you talked to and stuff, and I said, well, you know, it's, it's, if they're talking to me, they're probably not 
that big now. You know, they didn't do that well. So, I mean, that's because you're talking to me. That's, you know, unfortunately, that's the way it is. Like, I'm not going to get uh, Paul McCartney to talk to me or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, or even, you know, somebody, John Fogarty, even somebody like that. Yeah. But, uh, but I can get people from these bands and I can get people that run TV shows that have been forgotten. You know, people that run shows like Petticoat Junction, The Brady Bunch. Uh, you know, things like that. So, uh, but it was a labor of love. You know, I enjoyed, I, I loved even being able to, I, I made a couple really nice friends, uh, Susan Olson, who played Sydney on the Brady Bunch. She's become a real friend. That's great. She's my buddy. Yeah. Paul Peterson, who was uh, on John Reed show, who formed a minor consideration, which is a great group that uh, looks out for child actors. He's become a friend. So it, it's nice to, you know, to, to be able to, uh, you know, to talk to these people who I respect so much and see them as, you know, they're just real human beings and they all have issues and everything. And they're, I mean, they're, they're not living on the street, but they're not, uh, they're certainly not wealthy or anything like that. So in a, in a way that makes it easier for me to relate to them anyhow. Yeah. Well, there's an interesting, cause you, you covered a couple topics there and I consider them to be three distinct topics. Cause like number one, how, how ephemeral is the nature of fame? It comes and goes, you know, at the drop of a hat. Number two, discrepancy in pay, uh, is just fascinating. And that differs starkly in the in the entertainment, non-musical world, and the musical world. And I will tell you that I know nothing about music. Uh, it is the weirdest business. Uh, I don't understand how bands don't get, get songwriting credits so they don't make any money unless they're on tour. It's wacky to me, and that's not even adding the layer of mob influence, right? Uh, but let's, I want to I want to talk about a couple things in a row. Let's, I want to give a little time to each because, you know, when it comes to fame, that's the thing that, you know, brought me to it. That's the title of the book that, that's brought me in. Here is a perfect example of what you're talking about. John Wilkes Booth is a great example because in his day, correct me if I'm wrong here, I think you even in the book compare him to Brad Pitt. He was the most, I mean, he's the most famous stage actor, which could be the equivalent of, you know, film and television today. He would have been totally forgotten if he right. had not assassinated right. President Lincoln. You know, obviously that overshadowed the rest of his career. But you bring up one other person, Laura Keene, was one of the most famous actresses of that era, of the same era John Wilkes Booth. She was on stage with John uh, with, with John Wilkes Booth the night Lincoln was assassinated, and nobody remembers her because she didn't pull a trigger. This goes to what you were saying about how it's not interesting unless tragedy is involved. And unfortunately, that you know that influences even the nightly news. If it bleeds, it leads type of stuff. But this is I I think this is a perfect example of how what what fame is what permanent fame is attached to. And how quickly, no matter how famous you were at one particular time, within a generation or two, as that quote that I mentioned earlier that you wrote, in a generation or two, you're forgotten by yeah, all yeah. but your grandchildren. You know, I mean, that's 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 an incredible, I think that's an incredible illustration of it. Well, yeah, and it, it is obviously incredibly depressing. But, yeah, uh, but, but unfortunately, and I think that's, uh, you know, what's it, uh, Henry David Thoreau said, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And then they're uh, not very quietly uh, and not very desperately forgotten pretty soon. And it, ju it just is what it is. I mean, I, you know, I look like I, I don't know how often uh, anybody talks about my grandparents or something. I mean, just it just doesn't it doesn't happen. We've once in a great while you might. And and uh, and these are people that were, you know, in your in your lives. They don't have to be famous. They were famous. And, you know, they yeah, were, right, they were exactly. one of the most important people in your life. So people you tend to have short memories and right. you have to. <laughs> yeah. It had to be something special. I mean, if you're, Shakespeare is like one in a, a billion that he's he's managed to become, a, you know, an iconic figure. And you can, you know, certainly you mentioned John Wilkes Booth, who's 
he actually was the considered the least um, talented of the Booth acting family. But he was, he was the Stephen Baldwin da- of the group or Daniel Baldwin. Yeah, right? ex- exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but he but he was the dashing. He was he was called a matinee idol and uh, because the women loved him. And so that's why he was so popular. And uh, so, uh, but you're right. Nobody would know who he was. And Laura Keene's been forgotten. Harry Hawk, who was on the stage there too. And these are, you know, the people that were on stage the night uh, Lincoln was killed. And the only reason why you might have a few historians remember him is just because of that. But I, I have a bunch of other names of people that uh, from the, you know, the uh, 1800s, let alone the 1700s, who people uh, have completely forgotten. Yeah. And uh, they were they were what I call the glory of their times. You know, they were very famous and, uh, but people, and I, I, you know, you can, you can uh, fast forward even up to like the 1980s and I give examples of a bunch of 80s actors. I mean, that's not very long ago at all. And, you know, what happened? You know, what happened to Mia Sarah? You remember her? A gorgeous actress who was in a lot of big movies. Drop that aside. I don't know. And she's just one person, Deborah Winger. There's, there's tons of them that were big in the 80s and even into the 90s. And um, so you wonder... Exactly. I mean, do they? Maybe they think they've made enough money. They made enough film. Maybe they. they was more about money than the than making films. I don't know. But it's it's uh, it's an odd thing. I think the entertainment industry is it's difficult to stay on top. I think it's a cutthroat business, and there's only so many positions. Uh, you know, I mean, now we've got you know we're in a golden age of television. You got streaming services. You got a lot of television shows. This isn't a three network world anymore. Uh, it's not a, a one screen theater anymore. So you have lots of different people who can fill those roles. But there's a limited number of roles, right? Just because you have an expansion team uh, in the NBA, that's only adding 12 more positions, right? You still only have 340 N- NBA players, right? So there's a limited number, um, and I think that's part of it. Uh, one here's another interesting story that I, I took from your book, and to me, this I, I guess it's just my love of and fascination with entertainment in general. Uh, that, that's why I like stories like this. But you have, you know, D.W. Griffith dies in 1948. Now, most people listening aren't going to know who D.W. Griffith is. I went to film school. He gave us modern editing. He's kind of overshadowed by the racist elements of most of his movies. But if you pull that out of it and you look at him from just a technic- as a technical director, he is the guy who gave us modern film editing. He died in 1948. His pallbearers were Samuel Goldwyn. Cecil B. DeMille, people shouldn't recognize these names. Jesse Lasky, who was one of the first movie moguls of all time. Max Sennett, who was a, a huge director and producer. And Charlie Chaplin, another one, he, you know, he stands the test of time. And I love this because you mentioned journalist Ezra Goodman, um, you know, a Hollywood reporter at the time, said that a week before he died, he wouldn't have been able to get any of them on the phone, <laughs> right? Yeah, that right. I mean, That's if right. that does not encapsulate entertainment to me, I don't know what does. You know, I mean, some of it's about looking for your opportunities, great publicity. Who doesn't want to show up at D.W. Griffith's funeral, um, but we wouldn't take his phone call the week before. I, I don't know. It just, th- that kind of stuff, it just really encapsulates everything. Well, Hollywood is full. I mean, there's a reason why The Star is Born has been filmed so many times. Right, yeah. Because it's a, it's a, it's a, a classic story of uh, somebody helping out someone who isn't famous while they are famous mm-hmm. and then having being superseded by them. Yeah. And uh, again, mo- most people... They don't. They don't give the credit to that story where it should be. That really, that A Star Is Born is based on the relationship of Barbara Stanwyck, who was one of my favorite actresses, and Frank Fay, who has been completely forgotten. And Frank Fay was one of the. If you watch, there's a, one of the earliest talkies that you can still watch, or, or, or your show of shows, way before the 1950s series, and it's uh, Frank Fay is the headliner, and you watch it. He was basically the first stand-up comic. 
He did, you know, he's doing all the kind. He was really an, just incredible talent. But apparently, he's kind of a nasty guy, and he had problems with Jews or so. I, I don't know. But he, he ended up his career kind of fell off. But he was a huge drinker. But he he married Barbara Stanwyck when she was a nobody, and she superseded him very quickly and became a huge star. And he drifted into total obscurity. So I I think that's you know why that story is so compelling and has been made. You know, even the ridiculous one with Lady Gaga, I guess, yeah. last year. Or whatever, <laughs> I think it's been made like five times or something. But. Sure. Uh, because I, I think out there in Hollywood, they're used to seeing that stuff. Yeah. And uh, it's the way it is. You know, what have you done? You know, there's, uh, you know, the, the great expression, uh, you know, be nice to the people on the way up because you meet the same people on the way down. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, people in Hollywood don't seem to remember that. But uh seems like they should. You know, it's true. No, it's very true. Uh, and, and you know, one of the other stories, which kind of. Uh, the, the movies, there's a great movie called Sunset Boulevard, which is arguably one of my favorite film noir movies. Uh, I mean, it's got the greatest opening of all time. Um, but in it, you know, so here, here's my connection. In the book, you open, you open, I think you open the book with a quote from Gloria Swanson saying that you, you know, you put her name, she said, put my name on the marquee and watch the money roll in, right? Well, by the time Sunset Boulevard was, she was a big silent film actress. Uh, you know, once Sunset Boulevard rolled around in, uh, ooh, I think it was the 40s or 50s, I forget, I think it was in the 40s. 1950. Okay, I know it's on the border there. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, yeah. it, it, she she's lost her fame. No one really knows who she is. And the movie's about this crazy recluse who was famous, huge at one point, and now has you know receded and become a hermit in her own house, where she's reliving her glory days. You know, uh, day in and day out. I think her her, her director. She's married to her director. Who's you know become their butler. It's very strange. Uh, but yeah. you know, it's it's. That to me encapsulates like the kind of stuff that can strangely happen. Another person that you mentioned, and I want to stick this one in there, is Lois Weber, who I'd never heard of before. Female director during the silent era. Um, you know, you mentioned the book. She's mentioned in the same breath as D.W. Griffith, who we just talked about. She developed a split screen. Uh, she died in 1939, 18 years after the advent of sound. But she was so destitute 18 years after that. Uh, that it's it wasn't even known where her ashes were. I mean, her family doesn't yeah. know. I mean, how th this stuff yeah. is mind-boggling. How even the people closest to her, who should have been the most solid, or you know, her family for God's sakes, they don't even remember who she is. And she was such a big deal at one point. These are the stories that defy logic to be done. And that's uh, they're fascinating me too. And there, uh, there's lots of bigger names than her whose ashes uh, went unclaimed. And I, I talk about one of the saddest places in Hollywood is there, there's a, I forget the name of it. There's a, there's a special room in a mausoleum where a lot of the famous people are buried or their ashes are there. And it, it contains the ashes of very, some really famous actors like Thomas Mitchell. And uh, I think it was, uh, was it Harry, was it H.B. Warner, I think, Harry Carey, but, but this, uh, Edmund Gwen, you know, Miracle on 34th street, yep. Santa Claus. Yep. And, uh, None of the, and I, I point out there that most of them had been married, most of them had kids, and so how? how I mean, you don't hear that in the regular world, but you hear that that no. happened to uh, <laughs> Veronica, Veronica Lake. Actually, had like un, un, unusually in Hollywood, had like five five kids or something, but none of them wanted her ashes That's when she crazy. died. They said unclaimed for a long time. You had uh, May Bush, one of my favorite actors actresses from uh, the Laurel and Hardy films. She played. Uh, uh, Hardy's wife many times, just fantastic. Barbara Stanwyck, like, but she's a very underrated. Tragic life, died all too young. Her ashes went unclaimed for decades, and, and uh, they finally, the Laurel and Hardy Sons of the Desert group, 
ended up uh, paying to have them interred somewhere or something, but it took decades to do that. And, uh, and that's, she's also part of one of the big legends of Hollywood, which I've never understood. And that was uh, Jackie Gleason, who I love. For some reason, Jackie Gleason, after Mae Bush was dead, he used to regularly say, you know, in, in, during his uh, variety show, he would refer to the ever popular Mae Bush. And I, and I don't, I don't, I have no idea what that meant because the audience had pretty much forgotten her by then. Yeah. She was dead. She certainly wasn't popular. So what was, I, I would love to have asked him, you know, what, what did oh, there's you no mean answer to that? that? I thought you were going to, I thought you were going to yeah. reveal it. You don't no, even know. Oh, no, I don't know. <laughs> what a that, tease, that's Don. Ta- that's, yeah, well, that's what's tantalizing about yeah. it. I have no, cause it was never in any context. That's it was crazy. just, he just, he just dropped that in there. It's like, and you know, why would that, I mean, it's, it's almost, you know, like General Francisco, Francisco Franco is still dead or something, you know, it was a, a kind of a thing. But um, yeah, so I, I don't, but there's, there's so many people like Helen Chandler was another one who starred in Dracula. She was the, uh, the female lead, very tragic life, had terrible burning. She was almost burned to death and she ended up dying way too young. And again, nobody claimed her ashes. So that's, unfortunately, it's not a, it's not a, 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 a you know, an unusual story there and uh ones that two don't get cremated a lot of them are buried in unmarked graves their families don't even buy them a tombstone i i have no idea why that would be people like frank zappa george c scott these people are buried in unmarked graves i mean i i, I don't know are they afraid of, of, of attracting too many people the public i don't know but it's to me i think it's pretty weird well i mean you know fame fortune can also create very interesting relationships right you don't know how it may be destroy the relations with their families um, you know, it, it may, when you look at it, it, there may be a very logical reason as to why this happens. Um, but it, it but it is strange. It, you know, it's also, I think, you know, I, I want to do a, a shift here into the, the different discrepancies in, in, you know, earnings and what people have in their estates. But I think some of that can also be, you know, tied to how much do people spend during their life? Are there savers? There's people who are notoriously cheap right. in Hollywood. There's people who, you know, buy, uh, four or five different gold encrusted grills to, to, to wear. Uh, you know, it's a very strange. Um, but I wanted to pick, you know, a lot of your book, there are actors who were big at their time. I wanted to pick out the people who were, who should have transcended, you know, space and time, let's say. Um, because the, the other one here, Mary Pickford, who I love Mary Pickford, you know, Douglas Fairbanks has one of the largest um, uh, uh, presentations, the mausoleum. He's got like his coffin out in um, the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. It's gigantic. And no one knows who, no one really knows who Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford are. But she was, you know, she was one of the highest paid actors of the silent era. She has her footprints famously imprinted at Grauman's, uh, which are the tiniest footprints I've ever seen. Um, when she was, when she was on, st- like her dressing room, her green room was a five room cottage on the United Artists lot, complete with a butler. And she was a founding member of the United Artists. Hardly anybody remembers her. And the shift here is in 1918, she made $675,000 a year plus 50% in a three-picture deal. That was 1918. In the 1950s, Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn Monroe, at the height of her fame, made $100,000 for four films. Yeah, I, that's what blew my mind is you have it almost seemed yeah. like when films were just coming out and there wasn't really any money in it. People were making astronomical right. amounts. And then as it got more popular, yeah. as people made more money, the actresses, I mean, let's not even we hadn't even gotten into Judy Garland, who made barely any more more than Toto on The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. Uh, that was that was this was another thing that was just crazy to me, Don. Yeah, and, and you're right. It's it's uh, and I, I give lots of examples about how the uh, silent film stars. There was much bigger money there. So by the time. uh 
you know, people like uh, John Gilbert, who I love, one of my favorites, and I, I become friends with his granddaughter, Lauren Hart. It's very cool. Oh wow, uh, she's uh, <laughs> she's uh, very very nice, and you know, that, that, I think they appreciate uh, you know somebody remembers him. I think he's was treated unfairly, and they they tried to Louis B. Mayer tried to, uh, to screw him over, and uh, he his voice was fine. There was nothing wrong with his voice, but he ended up drinking himself to death. But he made a ton of money, and this when he was the king, he was the king of MGM during the silent era. Then Gable, Clark Gable took over in the cellar and Gable made a fraction of what he made. Gable was paid nowhere near. It made no sense. And uh, it's if you look at it and you had people, a lot of times it's just human nature where people will take advantage of you. And uh, I talk about Bela Lugosi, obviously, who was uh, they saw him coming and he was paid three thousand five hundred dollars to play Dracula. And meanwhile, you had John uh, uh, David Manners, who was fourth or fifth down the credits list, was paid fourteen thousand dollars in the same cast. That's so that, that's, it's, that's crazy. it makes no sense. Yeah. Talk about bullyocracy, by the way, Don. I mean, that's, I mean, yeah. you know what I mean? I mean, yeah. you bully your yeah. way into stealing someone's money. Yeah. And that's and people. And another guy that uh, got bullied by Louis B. Mayer was uh, Robert Taylor, one of the biggest stars that for whatever reason, and you know, he showed a willingness to accept really small amount. And, uh, you know, a lot of times that people didn't know they were necessarily going to share what others were making. But you know, later it became obvious that he was making nothing, considering what a star he was. So uh, they definitely would take advantage of some people, and uh, other people are uh, were smarter in the May Wests of the world, or whatever. And did really well. You can find this this stuff online, like the salaries for movie stars, like they're thirty six, thirty seven, thirty eight, eras like that. And uh, I I list them in the book, some of the most interesting ones. But I mean, it's amazing how. There'll be, uh, you know, like Mae West one year, she had one movie that year. It was like her last movie. It wasn't a big movie at all, and she made like 300 some thousand. And meanwhile, you had, uh, you know, he, she made more than Gable, and she made more than William Powell, who were making lots of movies all year. And it just didn't make any sense, but I can't figure it out. But my favorite example of the Hollywood uh, the, the inequity is uh, Betty Davis dying with less than a million dollars estate, which is very modest. And Step and Fetch It, who is the, uh, the, you know, basically the, the all-time Rachel caricature on screen, right? He died with a ten million dollar fortune. Now, I, I don't know, how, I don't know how that can be possibly explained. <laughs> it makes no sense at all. Yeah, yeah, but it is. I mean, you know, Hed, Hedy Lamar died broke, you know, and and was really, really brilliant. She was a uh, not just a pretty face, but she was a brilliant inventor, and uh, she died with nothing. You know, Mickey Rooney died with eighteen thousand dollars, but he did have eight wives, so you know, he had something to do with it, I guess. But uh, but yeah, there's so I mean, it's, certainly there's a obviously some of them spent you know were more spendthrift than others. Fred McMurray was notoriously cheap and he had a huge, you know, right? A huge estate. <laughs> That's my favorite story in the book because I love Fred McMurray. Uh, yeah. <laughs> just to know that he was so cheap. So, I mean, I think there's a, an interesting combination between you know the, the, the agencies and also how people spend their money, as I mentioned before. I think that there is something. Kind of fascinating if you were to look into that. I, I think you might find your answer. On the surface, it looks like a mystery, but I feel like there's there's a logical answer to this, despite how illogical Hollywood can be. Uh, but I I think it would be remiss. I wanted to touch on one other uh, one other actor. This may this kind of fits into all of it. But Jackie Coogan. Uh, you know, I did another episode uh, about the crazy crimes of California um, with a guy named Bob Calhoun, and we talked about Jackie Coogan. Because he was present at the last lynching in California, which is a very strange ending for him. But he started out as the kid on Charlie Chaplin. 
he was a character actor who made a lot of money and his parents brazenly stole from him. And so much so that the Coogan law was enacted. And this is a law in, in the entertainment industry where you, if you have a child actor, you have to set up a trust that only they can access. I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but it's basically to protect the child's earnings uh, from the parents. He ended up playing Uncle Fester on The Addams Family. Uh, it, it, it's such, I mean, talk about a crazy, I mean, no one, you know, outside of, you know, historians or people who are interested in it like you and I would even know who he is. But in a lot of ways, he had this lasting effect, uh, was famous for, you know, for legitimate reasons. And I bet no one has any idea who Jackie Coogan is if you were to mention him today. Right, exactly. He's a perfect example. And he, he was a, a child star and then a star uh, 40, decade, 40 years later. Yeah. Yeah, as Uncle Fester, that's what Baby Boomers remember him for. But yeah, he he made it said he made a million dollars, which is a lot of money back then. And you know his his uh, his mother and stepfather and I had the quotes from them in the book. They were just uh, they were pieces. Both of them were pieces of work. I mean, they just they they didn't care. They were proud of it. You know, it's not Jackie's money. Jackie's a bad boy. And I'm like, what? Yeah, and uh, that's nuts. so they did pass the it is they passed the Coogan law, and Shirley Temple uh, made even more money. Than Jackie Coogan, uh, she you know kept 20th Century Fox afloat, and again all her most all her money was gone by the time she became an adult and uh, from her parents. So it didn't seem to have protected her. And uh, although I guess the Coogan law helped some kids actors, but uh, he, by the time uh, Gary Coleman came along, yeah. didn't help him at all. Yeah, I mean his family's told everything he had. I mean the guy the guy ended up working as a security guard. You know, in his last year, it was very very sad. It was probably you know. Could easily have been murdered by his wife. I don't know. Died very suspiciously. You know, fell down the stairs or something. So, uh, very sad life. So, I, I don't. Uh, and again, Paul Peterson, my friend, uh, does really good work with a minor consideration where he, he tries to help these actors out. But uh, it, it, very few well-adjusted child actors. You know, it's, it's, it's just yeah. it's a story. You know, there, there's a lot of Macaulay Culkins out there. I mean, it just it just you know it just seems to be a pattern. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Macaulay Culkin's one of the few I think he's actually done well. He's a little weird, but uh, he's done yeah, well for himself. Is, is. Uh, but you know, child actors. That's a whole nother like subset in the book, which which is which is just fascinating. Um, one of the things so I want to get back to this to this, this this pay discrepancy. Sorry, I pulled us off of that because one of the other things that I think made played such a major role and. It, Again, this, this goes to your bullyocracy. This goes to greed. But, you know, a lot of this criminality, I would call it, came before television, really, right? And, and especially before home video. But, you know, when when you had all of these, you know, these these comedy reels, you know, the uh, the Three Stooges is, is a great example. You know, you they would show up on television. You know, baby boomers like yourself saw them on television. I, I saw them as, as a child as well. They became really popular. But the actors did not get paid the types of residuals that um, people nowadays get. And what actually struck me as so strange is SAG and AFTRA, who I don't know what they're, I mean, they're pretty powerful unions now. I don't know what it was back then. They didn't really step in at all. And a lot of these contracts back then had into perpetuity, which is, you know, kind of interesting because no one would really, you know, who would have even thought of of the, um, you know, the television revolution, much less the internet revolution, right? Um, but what do you think about this? Did you think, you know, SAG after, what was, why didn't they step in and help out their brethren? That's what they're paid to do. Well, I, I think again they came. They came along later, and uh, the, the, it wasn't. Uh, they weren't there for the uh, the people like the uh, the Three Stooges and the Little Rascals. You know, the the, the major uh, the major inspiration for my book was Smacky McFarlane, mm -hmm. right. who was the most popular member of our gang. And I just I just found his story tragic, and the fact that his likeness and name were used all over the place, and he got nothing from it. 
he died of a broken heart because uh, he, he, he that had to drive you crazy. I mean, how would, I mean, how would any of us feel if our name and likeness was being exploited and somebody was making a lot of money on it and we got nothing out of it? So I really could relate to that. And uh, same thing with the Three Stooges. I remember as a little kid watching, uh, you know, my favorite Curly was long dead. You know, mm-hmm. it took me a while to realize that. Right. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> Curly's dead. What? But Larry and uh, Mo were still alive and they were they were they would come on the local station that showed the reruns of the Three Stooges. And uh, they would have a commercial where they would be hawking T-shirts. And it was pathetic because they were really elderly. They were just trying to sell T-shirts. And um I just thought that's just something about that is just really unfair. And that's uh, that was one of the influences of the book, the inspirations, because, uh, you know, t- to me, it's what what could be more wrong than somebody who didn't had nothing to do with the creative process. I mean, people watch the Three Stooges because of the Three Stooges. They watch the Little Rascals because of the Little Rascals. Yeah. They don't watch them because of Hal Roach right. or whoever. They, 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 you know, most of them don't even know who you know, produced them. But those guys get the, the millions. And the actors got nothing. And this, it just seemed to me there's something terribly unfair about that. No, I, I mean, I think I think that that's right, except that, you know, if I were to take the opposing view of that, right, the producers are the ones who put the money up. They're the ones who piece everything together. The writers write the story. In truth, the actors are just saying what's on the page. They're just being told what to do by somebody else. They're The only reason why we believe them to be worthy of all of these millions is because they're the faces we see, right? You know, Alfred Hitchcock's a different example because he did the Alfred Hitchcock Presents and he was a character on screen. Plus, he was, you know, involved creatively in the process. Um, but with some of these... I think it's more our expectations are unreasonable by how much money we believe or how big their estate should be, rather than the reality of actors in the grand scheme of things, some of them might actually be overpaid considering what they contribute to the creative process. Uh, What do you think about that, just as a counter-argument? Well, I'm familiar with that argument, but I I, I just, uh, as a writer, you know, I I can relate to it because I can tell you the writer gets a very small percentage of all this, the royalty rate is very low. So between the publisher and the, the markers and all that, there somebody gets a lot of money off it. I, I see what my books make, and uh, you know I see what I make, and uh, so I can really relate to them because of that. And certainly, as television shows or uh, records that sell millions of copies are you know a whole different level. And when you look at something like, I can certainly the, the producers, whoever should set up the distribution, that should get something, obviously. But I think that. Uh, the actors for the Three Stooges and Little Rascals, things like that, where they were, that nobody had any expectation that, like they, they all told me that, you know, who, no, we didn't foresee television coming, we didn't know, uh, but uh, you know, so a lot of times they did sell their name and likeness. Laurel and Hardy sold their name and likeness to uh, Hal Roach, and uh, they didn't know, but, but it just seems to me that, uh, that certainly the performers ought to, at the very least, share in. Success, but the, to, to give, I don't know what they got for the Three Stooges and, and Little Rascals, Laurel and Hardy, things like that. But uh, clearly, they got a, a pretty good amount because Hal Roach you know, certainly died very wealthy, lived to be a hundred, outlived most of the Little Rascals. But um, for the the actress to get nothing, I just think that's a shame. And I, I don't know what the uh, what the residual rate should have been, but especially you know it didn't it wouldn't even have had to have been that generous. Because these shorts were shown over and over again, all over the world. So if they get if they got a little cut every right, time it yeah. was shown, it would add up. So uh, 
I just, you know, my, my heart will always be at the artist. You know, that's just, you know, I'm, I'm prejudiced, I admit it. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. I mean, I'm just, you know, and I'm kind of making, uh, you know, just, just kind of taking the other side of that argument because, you know, I, I mean, look, if ever, if people are getting paid, they should get paid. You know, I just think that I don't know what the fair amount is. And I think sometimes we overvalue an artist, you know, an actor's contribution. And I'm pro actor. I mean, I sound like I'm not. I sound like a union buster right now. <laughs> but I'm just saying, I think, you know, when it comes to the, uh, what the, the, the amount of work people put in, because um, I've produced stuff, I've been behind the scenes, I know the amount of hours that I put in on stuff, and I know how much on-screen talent puts in sometimes. <laughs> you know, I've seen actors, big actors who come in, you know, maybe a little hungover on a Tuesday, do a shoot, and they're great. I'm not saying they're not great. They nail everything, they do their job. I'm not suggesting that they don't, but I would say that that probably requires a little less work uh, than the right. producers. That's all I'm saying. Um, but what, you know, one of the things that I want to get to, because I don't want to leave her out. We, we kind of teased Judy Garland earlier. And to me, you know, I, I mean, I, I loved the wizard of Oz growing up. I love Judy Garland. I had a crush on her when I was a kid who didn't. Right. Um, but I was shocked and I mean, this might be common knowledge, right. And I might be the one who this, I was learning this. I was absolutely dumbfounded by how how little she was respected, how much she was abused, um, you know, on The Wizard of Oz, she made five hundred a week. Toto made hundred and twenty five yeah. a week. Uh, Jack Haley and Ray Bolger, for those who don't know who the you know that's the Scarecrow and the Tin Man, uh, yeah. I believe. Uh, I think that's right. Um, I forgot the name. I forgot who played the Cowardly Lion. I should know that. But they made three thousand dollars a week. I mean, and this is, you know, this is just one of the stories. I think there was a, another one in there where she was con contractually obligated to only drink coffee, smoke cigarettes, and eat chicken yeah. soup to yeah. keep her weight down, terrible. I yeah. think. I mean, yeah. <laughs> none of this yeah. would go on today. Um, I, I don't know. This blew my mind. I mean, maybe this wasn't a surprise to you, but it for sure was to me. Well, yeah, it was a surprise to me. I mean, I, I, but, I, mean, I knew Judy, Judy Garland was certainly exploited, but she's another one that uh, took advantage of. She was very fragile uh, emotionally, and uh, she was, you know, she was a mess, like Marilyn Monroe would be later. So there, there, there were reasons for people to be exasperated with them. But Judy Garland uh, was, uh, you know, really. Uh, there's, there's indication that she was raped by Spencer Tracy. We know he was a real despicable human being while she was underage. Uh, she may have been raped by Louis G. Meyer, Louis G. Mayer, and uh, you know he kept her on these, hopped up on these diet pills, and he uh, incorporated her stage mother into the conspiracy to, to keep her in line. He, he paid, he paid her mother basically the same thing he was paying Judy Garland, just to keep her in line. So, uh, so, wow. yeah, so, so she had, she had a vested Jeez. interest in keeping her stress. So it's, it's a shame. I don't know what Judy Garland, Judy Garland certainly would have had a more fruitful career, I think, if she hadn't started out like that. But, uh, you know, just at least, you know, Wizard of Oz, whatever she was going through at the time, certainly is uh, one of the all time uh, great films that, uh, definitely is, uh, is stands the test of fame. Yeah. No, I think that's right. But that's one of the examples of it's, you know, it's on film. We will always remember that performance. Um, but you know, right. it, it was just, it right. was just striking on how much she was abused, which goes again, you know, she was not treated like other actors of her same ability at, at the time. Uh, you know, as, as we we're kind of rounded up here, I want to touch on music a little bit because I know nothing about it. But, I, you know, I, I couldn't help but notice that you at least have a fascination with the music scene. There's a lot in the book with I, I was, you know, the way music is structured, who makes the money, who doesn't. I'm not in the music business. I know how entertainment works a little bit. Um, but 
this this was so bizarre. I mean, forget the racism you mentioned. You know, black artists weren't even weren't even paid out of fight for that. Let's forget all of the you know the, the extreme cases. Just for your average musician, you know, even in even in the height of you know the '60s and the '70s when you know a lot of the the big you know classic rock bands were coming in, coming out of the '50s. You know, the, the kind of the stuff you were into, the stuff you looked into. This, it blew my mind how few people a owned their own music and B, got paid for anything other than touring. This was crazy to me, Don. Right. Well, I mean, they all, I heard from several people that, uh, and I can understand, you know, because again, that's what, that's what I wanted to, you know, one of the things I wanted to be when I was writing songs as a teenager, and uh, that would have been my top fantasy, you know, I guess it's, you know, to to be in a band and touring in the early 20s, but I I doubt very seriously if I would have looked at very much at the contract before happily signing. And I wouldn't have looked at the details. And you got to remember, these guys were, you know, typically early 20s. And uh, they uh, they played on what uh, attracted them at that, what they were obsessed with. Girls, you know, drugs, alcohol, partying. And so they provided them with, you know, unlimited numbers of groupies. Uh, a lot of times they bought them a car or they chauffeured them around. Uh, they gave them drugs, if you know, and they, or, or alcohol, whatever. They got to party as much as they, they uh, got to have, you know, spend time in, you know, nice hotel suites. So they, they lived the life. And of course they, they, you know, they heard the cheers on stage. So, uh, they must've loved it, but it wasn't until maybe, you know, when their fame had dried up and then they realized a lot of noise, hey, you know, we sold millions of records, where are our royalties? And they would go asking for them and they'd say, yeah. they just shrug. I mean, and you, some of the biggest guys like Waylon Jennings, I think a couple of years ago came out and, and I think a couple of years ago, he earned his first royalty check ever. <laughs> now, I, I, don't, I don't know how that's possible. I don't know how many millions of records he sold. And uh, there are others like that. And, uh, you know, it's it's how how does that happen? But I think it's uh, because the record companies have a, a maybe even more uh, an interest uh, that, that the old studios used to have because they used to. But at least the studios paid, you know, you, mm-hmm. you were you were in a contract. Right. You just couldn't leave. But you you made you made a finite salary. Uh, the record companies would sign you, and then, you know, a lot of times if the record company didn't steal from you, your your uh, agent or manager did. Many times it was the manager. I, I heard that from lots of people. So, uh, again, there were some that did okay, but a lot of them don't even know how much. And you know, like what the guy in the Ventures uh, told me, you know, there's a group that uh, did the Hawaii Five O theme song and Walk Don't Run and a lot of big instrumental hits. He was the last surviving member of the of, of the drummer. And uh, he told me that, uh, you know, they just they just told us we know we sold, you know, two million or whatever of, of walk, don't run. But, you know, they sold them with seven hundred thousand or whatever. And they still didn't pay them well. And uh, so that and that's and so that and that, you know, I, I, I can understand that as a writer, because when I get my royalty statement, uh, I have there's no way I can prove that whatever their figures are aren't right. I don't I don't know how to do that. So I mean, they can claim I sold as many books as they want. I don't know. And certainly the record companies probably do it even more where they uh, they exploit these guys and and some of them don't even see. I mean, I imagine the black artists probably you know didn't even see any any statements, you know, about how many records they sold. But uh, so it's it's uh, it's very sad. I can certainly relate to it. But again, it's uh, it's a question of yeah, they they're kind of like college athletes, you know, where they lead a real great life for a few years, you know, and yeah, they're not technically they're not paid, they're being exploited, but. They have it real well, you know. They have lots of groupies and adulation and everything. You can't feel too sorry for them, but they are being exploited. Same thing with the band members. I mean, they they lead an enviable lifestyle, 
And but at least up until the uh, again that 15 20 year period Mick Jagger was talking about during that time they all made money apparently but outside of that that was the the story was usually that you know what royalties yeah. Well, I mean, the NCAA thing is changing a little bit for some reason, you know, for, for obvious reasons. Um, you know, the thing that struck me again, it's similar with with the movies. That's uh, the big names that that really caught me. Like, you know, you mentioned that uh, the Rolling Stones didn't even own their own catalog. Uh, the Beatles lost right. control of their catalog. John Fogarty of Creedence Clearwater Revival doesn't own his catalog. And then you mentioned that Led Zeppelin's manager was able to land Led Zeppelin five times what the Beatles were earning in royalties. I mean, yeah. I, there is such, it's not even so much a discrepancy in, the discrepancy in earnings is the symptom of a much bigger problem, which is people will play, pay as little as, as they can get away with. And your representation that you have to trust, they don't always, they don't always get you the best deal. Uh, and, and I think that that is really the lesson here. And I think the other lesson is that people will take advantage of you whenever they can, uh, and they will continue to. I mean, Taylor Swift doesn't even own her first six albums. I mean, she has to re... I actually thought this was brilliant. She actually is going to re-record her first six albums so that she so that she will own them because she's essentially covering herself. That's what we have to find loopholes. I thought that was brilliant, actually. I mean, I was so impressed with that. Uh, it, it, it's, it's just, I mean, it, it's just crazy to me. Uh, the other thing before we go, before we go here, um, that Warner Brothers owns the rights to Happy Birthday. Uh, I worked at Warner Brothers for for a long time, and there was always this rumor that Warner Brothers owned Happy Birthday, and they charged an arm and a leg, which is why you never see it on television. And yeah, you're telling me that's true. Uh, that's crazy. I, how was that not in the public domain, by the way? I, the, 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 again, it was written by uh, I can't remember the name of the sisters. A couple of sisters, Hill sisters wrote it, and Hill sisters, and they made tons of money on it, and. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know how that worked out that way. I, you know, it's, it's, it, every other song like that is in the public domain, but it's you know, it's like it's like Beatles music now. You know, you can't you, if you watch a Beatles special, or whatever they they really don't don't play the Beatles music anymore. Yeah. And I really don't understand. I have a friend that does a Beatles podcast, and uh, he can play Beatles music if it's live, but when oh, they if it's a live radio show, but if he if he reruns it, if he broadcasts it as a podcast, he has to edit all the music out. Wow. That's interesting, and I, I, I don't understand it, but uh, it's, uh, and they're very the Beatles apparently very litigious about it too. So was, uh, I mean, that would be just Ringo. That'd be Paul just McCartney. yeah, that'd just be Paul basically. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> let's say it. Let's call him out. I love Paul McCartney, but come on, man. Well, y Yoko, y Yoko. Oh, too. fair enough. Yoko, I think yeah, Yoko, I Yoko and Paul, I think were the one. I don't think Ringo really. I mean, what is Ringo yeah, going to sue yeah. about? He didn't. He didn't. Anything, <laughs> Yoko, so. the fifth, the sixth Beatle. Um, you know, one of the things right, that, that I wanted to close with this because we talked about how film and television, you know, the stars in the early silent era making a bunch, and as they got more success, as they become more, as films and television became more popular, they made less. You put in some of the streaming deals. You know, we talked about how, you know, some of the early artists were made more money, but, you know, the streaming deals um, on Apple, on Apple, uh, if you get a million plays, you get $8,000, a million plays, $8,000 on Spotify uh, for a million plays, you get $4,000. And on Pandora, for a million plays, you get $1,600. <laughs> These are a million wow. plays would have gotten you a gold record if I'm, you know, if, I, if I'm correct, yeah. or a platinum yeah. record. That, that's yes. crazy yes. to me, Don. Uh, yeah. But it just shows it that is. it's, you know, it's the, the discrepancy. They're making more money than ever now. They figured out music, right, for a long time during the Napster era. 
you couldn't make money on music. Yeah. Everyone was stealing it. They found yeah. a great way to make money, continue keeping it thriving, and you know they steal all the money from 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 the artist. You know, and that and that is the one thing. And one thing I don't mean to cut you off there, Don, but that's the one place where I would take the artist's side because they are the ones performing everything, writing the music, performing the music, um, except you know different than actors. Anyway, what were you saying, Don? Sorry. Yeah, and, and that's where the breakdown occurs in in today's entertainment world, whereas uh, the uh, actors today are certainly the people on the television shows are, you know, they're pretty much set for life if you're on any kind of a, you know, a successful show, right. you know, and, and you're still going to get royalties and residuals, yep. which the old people didn't yep. get. Uh, and obviously anybody that has any kind of a career in movies is, is making a huge amount per movie. But so the, I, I really don't worry. Although again, I, I put in the book that the average actor still doesn't make that very, very much because they're background players or their crowd scenes, things like that. But uh, for anybody who's, you know, uh, has a name actor, they're doing better than ever. But uh, the music business is exactly opposite. They're making much less money today than they ever did in the era. The era of the big uh, record contract is gone. As you know, the, stre the streaming services pay almost nothing. Even, even Taylor Swift, you know, who's one of the few that can have millions of downloads. But she's still not making much money on that. So <laughs> the average band's... Uh, out there, I, I love groups like Vertical Horizon, people like that. That are, uh, I mean, I'm sure they don't make they make peanuts, and uh, so it's it's something again. It's, it's way different than it was uh, again during that 20 year era, so late 60s to the 80s, where uh, money was uh, you know was just being thrown out everywhere in the music yeah. business, and th those guys should be fabulously wealthy, but uh, the ones now, unfortunately, people still want to be rock stars. But uh, I mean, I don't know what the you know some of the, the music you know the there really isn't any rock and roll now. I don't. I don't know what music is now. It's just all kind of American Idol stuff. I, I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't like it at all. But uh, it's it's kind of uh, putrid pop, you know, Grammy Award stuff. And I, I I think it's you know it's a shame. And I think that's why classic rock and older music is becoming so popular among young people because uh, it just sounds so much better. Obviously, same thing with classic movies. I was interviewed yesterday by a really young guy who uh, loves classic films. And, uh, you know, he loves watching it because it just they compare favorably. I mean, it is what it is. I mean, the, the production values are better. Everything about it was, was done at a higher quality uh, level. So uh, but yeah, so it's unfortunately people today's the wrong time to be a music star because uh, I don't know unless you can get a TV show or something. I, I don't know how much. I mean, I guess, you know, the, the Kanye West and people like that somehow must have a lot of money. But I don't know if it's from their music or just from being associated with the Kardashians. I don't even know. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's really true. You know, you mentioned, and you mentioned how you have, um, you know, people, the rock stars, their, their agents and managers would give them houses and, and on all this type of stuff. I mean, you look at TikTok stars. I mean, there's the hype house where you got, you're just getting a bunch of TikTok stars together to create content, yeah. which is just them, videos of them partying. <laughs> How's that content? Yeah. And I hate that word, by the way. Yeah. It, honestly, it's just yeah. people, it's just making videos to make other people want to do what they do. And then I'm sure that there's money to be made, but they're not seeing it. They're seeing it in the house. And as you mentioned, a lot of the rock stars of that, that classic era, I think they probably snorted a lot of their money, probably gave it away, drank a lot of that money. Yes. Uh, so there's a lot of yeah. that going on. Um, but, you know, I, I want people to find this book. We just scratched the surface. I mean, we didn't even talk about the stuff that I really like, the strange conspiracies, the weird disappearances. <laughs> people should read the book. There's 
just some wacky stuff that went on in Hollywood, um, you know, uh, th- that I just love. Now, how can people find it? If people want to find you, if they want to find your book, how can people get in touch with you? Social media, websites, where can they do that? Well, the book is available everywhere. You know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, whatever. Bear Manor Media is the publisher, which specializes in entertainment books. Uh, you can find my writings at Substack at donaldjeffries.media. You can find my blog at donaldjeffries.news. Uh, I'm easy to contact that way. Uh, I'm I'm very uh, have a big presence on Facebook. Easy to find there. Uh, Twitter I don't use as much as I should, but that's um, uh, yeah. I'm I'm easy to find if you if people do a search for me, they'll probably find out more than they want to know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, I mean, you got a lot of great stuff out there, and I'm going to put links to all that stuff on the website. Um, so, uh, I, I mean, I'm looking forward to checking out Bullyocracy. I think that's great. Uh, but until then, Don, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for anytime. Thanks for having me. You got it. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Now, if you like the show, you've got to subscribe. You can find us on all the major podcasting platforms. And if you don't have a favorite podcasting platform, never fear. We got you covered. You can go to fascinatingnouns.com, scroll to the bottom, and you can find every place you can locate us and find one that fits your lifestyle. Fascinatingnouns.com is the place to go because it is also there that you can find the show on YouTube. Yes, we have a live video version of the podcast now on YouTube. YouTube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn is where you find it. And that is not the only place where you can find the show on social media. We got links to our shows, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, and of course, Instagram right there. Fascinatingnouns.com is the place to go. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.